Perego Springs, which is mile 300 that we were like, all right, let's just stick together and see where this goes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And we, we made it really clear. I, maybe we didn't say it that many times, but it was so obvious to me and I believe to Jesse that, you know, if we couldn't stay together, that was totally fine. It wasn't like we yeah. made a pact that if one of us fell off the pace that the other one wasn't going to keep going. Uh, so I think it's kind of remarkable that we actually were able to stay together because over that distance, especially with different kind of bikes, anything could happen. The fact that we we weren't really waiting for each other. We really were riding a consistent pace and kind of stayed on the gas. Um, so yeah, the fact that we finished together is, is, is pretty cool. And then to bond along the way, I mean, we definitely were racing each other for, for over 200 miles. And then, and then we we're, yeah, we we're like, let's see what happens. And then we finished together. It was great. <laughs> I think it was like Dana said, I don't think we ever said it until maybe late. I mean, it was 300 and something ish miles in before we were like, let's try and do this together. And that, I think it might've been climbing up out of kind of the last spot on the pavement when we were like, let's just roll in together. Like, I'm not going to drop you. Yeah. Don't drop me, you know, kind of like a mutual, but up until then it wasn't, we didn't ever say it. It was just kind of, we both felt it, I think. And we both, and you're also like, you are pushing. And also the other pushing person is pushing you, you know, like we were never more than two miles apart. And so you'd either see a blinky red light and that would make you motivate you to chase them back. And then you'd end up there again. And he might be having a high or a low. So it is like these kind of things you can't plan it to ride together. Like you couldn't with anyone. It's just so timing your highs and lows and your bonks and all of that. Like I think it would be harder going into it to be like, let's finish together than it happened for us. You know, I think it just has to happen kind of. Welcome to another episode of the Stoke Podcast. Like always, my name is Quinn Travis, and on this episode, we have two badasses. We have Jesse Reeves and Dana Ernst. They just completed the Stagecoach 400, and they didn't just complete it. They won it, and they won it together. And so we kind of dive into the conversation of the chain of events leading from mile one to mile 397. Now, I don't know if you've ever bike packed or I don't know if you're an XC kind of sewer or a marathon rider, but these guys race their bikes for 400 miles. And so this conversation was awesome. And um, we kind of switched some things up because now I have two people on the podcast, you know, because usually it's a one-on-one, but this conversation was really cool because we kind of had like um, a three-way conversation just about all the chain of events that happened um, throughout their experience. And just an update from our partner sponsor, Moxie Nutrition. They're founded by a female six-time Ironman finisher and a four-time NCAA All-American of the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater Wall of Famer mineral health specialist, and magnesium expert. Moxie Nutrition is one of the few female-owned and operated endurance sport nutrition companies in the U.S., catering to all athletes of all ages. Check out their products at moxielife.com. Mag up with HydroMag, magnesium for better performance and recovery. And I talk about HydroMag a lot on the podcast every episode, I've been using their products on a daily basis 
Um, and my go-to products are Hydromag and Phytolite. Now Phytolite's more for on the bike. Hydromag is off the bike. I do it in the morning or at night and Hydromag helps my body recover. I feel great, my mood's higher, um, and it's just the quality you just can't beat. And at checkout, put STOKE PODCAST, all caps, to get your 15% off. Now, enough with that jazz. During this episode, Dana was kind of talking, you know, I don't know if you've signed up for the pinions and pines and realize that you might have been on a wait list with 75 other people. Well, um, during this episode, Dana said that my name was eighth in line and we're kind of coming up on it. So he says you're more than likely to get in. And so now I've been really considering, you know, diving into um, the pinions and pines. It's a 300 mile bikepacking race and it's completely out of my comfort zone. So, um, yeah, if you guys are listening to this, uh, send me a DM to think, you know, to, to put your opinion in to see if I should do it or not. Um, the only concern is I'm signed up for a race, um, a marathon race in Colorado at the end of May. So it'd be around a week and a half to two week recovery after the pinions and pines, but I don't know. I don't know. I'm considering it. But enough, enough talk. Let's get into the episode. We got Jesse Reeves and Dana Ernst. Here we go. All right. We're back with the Stoke Podcast. Uh, today, I have the Stagecoach winners, um, Stagecoach 400 that just happened. What was it? Two, three, four weeks ago? Three weeks ago now, maybe, huh? Three weeks ago. Three Still weeks ago. Still yeah. shit. <laughs> Still, huh? Yeah. Things hurt still. I bet. Yeah. I did not. I actually, like a week out, I thought, oh, I'm, I'm recovering really quickly. And then I, and then I did a couple easy rides and I was like, oh, I feel fantastic. And then I went out for a longer ride and just got eaten alive. Yeah. Dan and I talked a bit about it and it's like a very, I compare it to like a, a latte where it's like when you go so deep that you like empty the cup, like you can still like afterwards, like a week or two out, you can like scrape the top and get a little bit off the good stuff, the foam. But like, yeah, if you try and start chugging that again, like that cup's not full for like months. I mean, it's hard to, it takes a toll for sure. It's a good two months for me before I'm back to feeling yeah. like I could do it again, you know? Yeah. Really? I think, I think of these big events as being like endurance and fitness spenders, not builders, right? Like you, you build by doing longer events and stuff like, but these are so taxing that you've spent everything. You didn't gain yeah. anything. Yeah. 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 Um, so I'm still in recovery mode. <laughs> oh, I, I, I bet. And we'll get into recovery. Um, but for everyone who's listening, guys, you, you did a 397 mile bikepacking race. That's that why was... my miles were. I think I had more miles than Jesse because I made a lot yeah, of wrong. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Jesse had fewer miles than me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like a thousand remember. feet less to avert. Yeah. Could be. That's yeah. So yeah, I, I had a couple of resupplies that were slightly off route, which contributed additional miles. It, that's probably where they all were. I mean, all my wrong turns didn't really add up that mileage. It was a couple hundred feet, you know. That yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I was just I was just looking at the uh at the profile um, today before we got on and it looks amazing. And I, I talked to Greg Dunham uh, two episodes ago, kind of like discussing 
the stagecoach 400 and how, you know, this was pre-race, like before you guys got going and you guys start at sea level in San Diego and then go into like Escondido and get into the, you know, the Santa Monica mountains. Is it? No, it's south of Mount. I don't even know. Cuyamaca is the big ones, but yeah. really, and so you actually start, we started at what? 6,600. Yeah. We started in down. And yeah. then you're at sea level and then you climb back up and over and then down again and then back up. Oh, yeah, so, so start finishes in Idlewild. So yeah, 6,000 plus feet. Okay. In the, in the snow. I was, yeah. And when I was looking at the the map, I, I figured, you know, you would start in San Diego, then go out, do your adventure and then come back. But I like that style of you're in the mountains, get going, drop down and then climb back up to the finish. Yeah. 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 The, the down from <laughs> Idlewild to San Diego is uh, not as easy as one might think. Yeah. Yeah. It's about, yeah. I think it ends up being like 7,000 feet of climbing to get down to sea level. <laughs> like it's a bunch in that first, I think it's 120 miles. Exactly. The coast, yeah. And it's, I want to say seven or 8,000 feet. I think Jesse's right. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that is just so cool. And so you guys, I want to start from the end and we'll kind of work our way back. But so how, how did you guys end up uh, finishing first place at the same time? Go for it, Dana. <laughs> I'm just going to say you go for it. Well, <laughs> well, let me just throw this out there. So we did tie, but if someone really, really wants to know who would have won if we were actually racing, my money's on Jesse. So, so I'm happy to share the top podium step with Jesse and I'm psyched that it ended that way. Like, I can't imagine a better way to do it. Like, I'm so thrilled with how the whole thing went down. Like it's, it was a perfect ending uh, in my mind. And so, I don't know, you know, we saw each other for the first time, I think at mile 52, I'd never met Jesse before. And I was kind of leaving as he was coming to a resupply. And then he caught up to me somewhere around miles 75-ish or something like that. And then we were kind of back and forth, you know, chatting, getting to know each other. But it wasn't really until probably, I don't know, 200 plus miles in. Where yeah, East, yeah. Yeah, where we were. Agua Caliente. Yeah. Agua Caliente is kind of where we like first talked about actually riding together versus us just kind of being on a similar pace trajectory. And from there, that was heading into like the sandy washboard. And that was when we kind of bonded. And that was when the misery and like commiseration started. So it was really, I mean, truly, I feel like it wasn't until Borrego Springs, which is mile 300, that we were like, all right, let's just stick together and see where this goes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And we, we made it really clear. I, maybe we didn't say it that many times, but it was so obvious to me and I believe to Jesse that you know, if we couldn't stay together, that was totally fine. It wasn't like we yeah. made a pact that if one of us fell off the pace that the other one wasn't going to keep going. Uh, so I think it's kind of remarkable that we actually were able to stay together because over that distance, especially with different kind of bikes, anything could happen. The fact that we, we weren't really waiting for each other, we really were riding a consistent pace and kind of stayed on the gas. Um, so yeah, the fact that we finished together is, is, is pretty cool. And then to bond along the way, I mean, we definitely were racing each other for, for over 200 miles. And then and then we we're yeah we we're like let's see what happens and then we finished together it was great <laughs> that's awesome yeah that's i think that's what's so cool and and intriguing um for someone who races a very competitive 50 to 100 miles you know it's really hard to stay with 
someone for even 10 to 15 miles, you know, especially when you're 50. Well, I mean, even if you got 150 miles left to go, you're, you guys are still uh, pushing, uh, even though it's a bike packing race, you guys are still, you know, on the gas. And so for you two to stay together is so cool. And I thought, you know, it was maybe like, all right, you know, we've gone this far, you know, let's just finish together. And you still had a hundred miles ago, but it kind of sounds like you were on the same, same pace. Yeah. I think it was like Dana said, I don't think we ever said it until maybe late. I mean, it was 300 and something ish miles in before we were like, let's try and do this together. And that, I think it might've been climbing up out of kind of the last spot on the pavement when we were like, let's just roll in together. Like, I'm not going to drop you. Yeah. Don't drop me, you know, kind of like a mutual, but up until then it wasn't, we didn't ever say it. It was just kind of, we both felt it, I think. And we both, and you're also like, you are pushing. And also the other pushing person is pushing you, you know, like we were never more than two miles apart. And so you'd either see a blinky red light and that would make you motivate you to chase him back. And then you'd end up there again. And he might be having a high or a low. So it is like these kind of things you can't, plan it to ride together like you couldn't with anyone it's just so timing your highs and lows and your bonks and all of that like i think it would be harder going into it to be like let's finish together than it happened for us you know i think it just has to happen kind of yeah totally yeah there there were numerous times throughout the race where i thought well that's the last time i saw (laughs) jesse and then and then we'd see each other again so there were a few instances where i thought that's it yeah and you have to ride that high too yeah uh right like if and it's not a partner partner race you know so if you're you're solo and your legs are feeling good and you're you're euphoric yeah Yeah, i I think you have to go and yeah um because it's so with that mileage you know it's so hard to tell but that's really cool and anything is possible i mean that's yeah you can't like i said you can't plan it like if he got a flat tire and it he was sitting there 10 minutes later, still fixing it. I'd, I would have been up the road, you know, I'm, I'm not going to sit and wait for him. Like, right. Yeah. 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 yeah it just worked out and it was pretty and, cool. And Dana, you said, you know, you guys were riding different bikes. And so, um, starting with Jesse, like how, how did you kind of come into the race with your equipment? So Dana has mentioned it before, like I'm pretty anal about it and I've been, on the indoor trainer for the last four months, I truly had one ride outside prior to the race since October. And that was like a five mile ride on this new bike, this custom mosaic that I had made. Yeah. Just um, say that again. Just say that again, Justin. Yeah. <laughs> say it again. So 100, 116 indoor rides in a row, one outdoor ride. And then I lined up for stagecoach. Longest ride was four hours indoors but I've kind of done that enough now, not this kind of distance, but I've done enough like seasons indoors that I know it works, that I'm like not worried about my fitness, but there's always like the unknowns with the bike. So bike, I'm kind of more of a roadie than anything these days. So like, I like a pretty aggressive arrow, like that's always in my mind. So this bike is a mosaic GT two X. So it's essentially like a drop bar 29 er or almost a gravel bike that fits like a true 29 by 2.25. So pretty aggressive, rigid fork, drop bars, like mix of Ultegra and GRX DI2 drivetrain. What was my gearing? 34 up front with an 1146 out back. Arrow bars, like DI2 buttons on that. So like looking at this race now, I don't know that I would ride the same bike because it. 
I think it was a lot rougher than I anticipated in a few spots, but I went into it looking with my eyes on like the big pavement stretch. Like there was like a 60 mile stretch along the coast down through downtown San Diego. And like, that was kind of when I actually made my move. Like I, Dana pulled off. I was behind him at that point. He had his resupply. And so like, I kind of built the bike knowing that there was one or two of those sections where I could make up an hour, you know what I mean? So that was yeah. kind of the trade-off that I took. Andy okay. did Andy did put an hour into me there. <laughs> yeah. 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 And so Dana, what was your setup? So I, I had a hardtail mountain bike. Uh, I had 2.35 Mezcals on there. Uh, so fast rolling tires, but hopefully I was hoping they were wide enough for the sand. They totally were. Um, I have, hip and back issues. And so I was definitely not in an aggressive arrow position. I have like super upright wide handlebars. Um, I had front suspension and a dropper post. Uh, the dropper post for me is mostly for getting on and off the bike with my shitty hip. Uh, but actually I used it quite a bit. I was glad I had it um, for the riding. Um, it was funny, you know, like really, if you looked at Jesse and I on our two bikes, we, I mean, completely different setups in my mind. Uh, when Jesse was on the pavement and in his arrow bars, I had extreme envy because he was just like, when he was gone. And I was like, totally spun out trying to like, you know, he's a mile in front of me and I'm trying to catch up. Uh, and then he also did a remarkable job on all the like pretty, there was not any technical single track, really. It was all pretty mellow, yeah. but you would still think on the bike setup that I had, it would just be easy for me to like tootle along and go way faster than Jesse. But every time I look back when we were on the mellow single track, I'm like, damn, he's still right there. What the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and so then, I mean, I'm a bigger guy and I'm older. And so like, I was kind of impressed myself that I was able to sort of keep up with Jesse on the hills. Um, and so that's sort of where I was able to make up ground on longer climbs, especially if they were technical at all, which there weren't that many of. And then one big descent um, that was pretty rocky and, and crazy, like Jesse had to walk probably most of it. And I was like, wow, I'm really <laughs> glad I'm not on Jesse's bike right now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I had Eagle Axis, no arrow bars and a pretty comfy mountain bike setup. Despite the comfort, my hands are still a little jacked up from all the washboards and stuff. Oh, I bet. And yeah, so Dana, how is the hip doing? Uh, I mean, I'm psyched. So for those that don't know, I have a pretty significant torn labrum, a giant cyst in my hip next to that torn labrum. Um, and basically I have FAI, femoral acetabrial, impingement i didn't say that exactly right but that's more or less the idea so my femur is a little bit misshapen and every time i sort of bend or uh flex my hip uh, i'm basically crushing my labrum every time so i put slightly shorter cranks on which helped and tried to get more upright um a year ago i wasn't able to ride i took six months off and all i could do is like walk around the neighborhood for six months and so the fact that I was able to get back on the bike, do my PT and be able to complete something like this, I'm so psyched because a year ago I thought, you know, I'm done. Like I probably need pretty significant surgery. All the docs I've talked to keep telling me I need surgery and I'm just going to put it off as long as possible. And I'm psyched that it's still feeling well, but it feels like a ticking time bomb for me tomorrow. It could be ruined. I don't know, but I'm just going to keep out the wave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And just hope that it keeps working out. And so far so good. Yeah. Go I don't, remember any point of you like saying that that was I mean something always hurts in these races like you just bank on it and it's usually just what hurts the most at that like you, your brain can only process like certain hurt at a certain point so yeah but I don't ever remember say you complaining no. about the hip being like the weakness no I think there was maybe five minutes um and it was 
I remember exactly where I was. It was just before my only flat tire sort of coming out of San Diego on that, on those, on that bike path behind the giant mansions where I was like, Ooh, my hip's starting to hurt. This is not great. And it really only hurt for about five minutes. I stood up a bunch and kind of stretched it out and just changed my position on the bike. And then it never bothered me again, or it was, and I was so distracted by how much my ass and hands hurt that I didn't notice anymore. <laughs> so maybe yeah. that, but it really, it, it treated me well. And I'm, I'm so psyched. I mean, cause you know, everybody I've talked to doctors and PT, they're like, yeah, this is in bad shape. You should, you need surgery. And I'm like, eh. I'd be out for nine. I'd be out for nine months. It's like not as good of an outcome and longer recovery time than just a new hip. And any guarantee, like nothing's a hundred percent. You know what I mean? So, so, well, yeah, that's, that's really cool though, that you actually did the stagecoach. Cause that was, that was one of the, you know, concerns I had just previously talking to you and um, your concerns kind of coming into this season as well was just like that hip and how you were going to take care of it and so forth. So I'm glad you know, it worked out and it felt decently good besides that yeah. one little hiccup. Um, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm psyched. Yeah. I, I couldn't be happier. <clears throat> that makes the whole thing that much more special to me because I, I literally just thought these things were over for me and to yeah. be able to come do it and then have such a wonderful experience. It just adds to the whole value of it for me. Totally. Yeah. Cause I mean, even on my big endurance days, you know, when like I have a tweak or, you know, like my ass hurts because of my chafe. Like it's, it just is like, okay, well, I'm in the most beautiful area ever, but all I can think about is this, this chafe that I got going on. So, you, you know, these things could be super distracting when you're doing, you know, such a cool event like this. So, um, and I want to shine some light, you know, we're talking about a 400 mile race and you two are kind of like, talking about it as if oh yeah no it was super nice and it was fun and you know my bike it was great on that 60 mile section and I just dropped into my arrow and yeah it was all good we rolled in together uh it was fun and you know but I'm sure that it wasn't all all uh fairies and and uh fairy dust you know like it it, it got hard right and so I kind of want to get into I, I want a shared experience because you guys were riding for such a long time. Like, were you both at any time kind of discussing like, fuck, holy shit, this sucks. Or, I mean, yeah. how was how that? How did you guys kind of battle those, those demons in a way? I think there was at least two times we had a shared shitty experience. Would you agree, Jesse? Yeah. And it's hard because you don't know. I mean, like I said, every, you have your highs and your lows. And you plan on having those. So like, you know, there's going to be parts of the race that you're just miserable and you'll look back on it and not hate it. But you also don't know if like you're truly that miserable or if the other person is miserable and rubbing off on you. Like, it's tough to tell that. But yeah, there were definitely two points, the sandy washboard section through the desert and then the willows and the like riverbed after the willows. Yeah, definitely like a couple hours each of like not it's just miserable i mean yeah you don't want to be there like if there was a tap out button you'd probably push it but also that's just not an option so you just keep going <laughs> yeah, yeah so yeah so, so i was gonna say i think those two spots i would agree i think that so there's this on the stagecoach for those that aren't familiar there's these two notorious sandy sections i i knew roughly when they started uh 
I didn't know how long they were. I didn't know how hard they were. I didn't know how long they would take. I just knew, oh, sometimes people lower their tire pressure because it's because <laughs> it's really sandy. And I didn't really know what to expect when when I was waiting for Jesse at Agua Caliente or before we sort of talked about maybe riding together, I got there a little bit before him and I was resupplying and then Jesse showed up and there was another guy there who had just ridden the course or at least most of it in the reverse direction, whose name was also Jesse, I think. And he like five times told me like, it's going to be this and it's going to be that. And it's this many miles and blah, blah, blah. And I just like, I heard none of it <laughs> and I kind of didn't want to know, but I certainly, I couldn't process it. And so that section, that first Sandy section, I don't know, it was 20 plus miles long, but we didn't know that going into it. Um, 99 times out of 100, I'm pretty sure I would hate that. So no matter whether I was with Jesse or not, or if it was like a day ride or whatever, I think the first few miles would be fine. And then I pretty much always hate it. The other section that we had a shared miserable experience on was this thing called the Willows and the section after where you climb up into this river and have to navigate your way into this tunnel of Willows and navigate your way to this creek bed and then climb up the Sandy Wash after that. Maybe we both... Yeah would appreciate that if we had done it in the daylight and we weren't, you know, 40 hours into it. I kind of believe that maybe that wouldn't be so bad. And and especially looking at how fast other people did it after us, like we were just completely shattered. I don't think that we fed off each other's negative energy. I think we simultaneously felt really shitty. Like, I don't <laughs> yeah. think that I was feeling bad because Jesse was feeling bad. And hopefully I didn't make him have a bad experience, but maybe on a different day, that wouldn't be so bad. But yeah, no, I agree with that. Or even I, daylight. I think the daylight would have like, like you said, just looking at if you push the replay, like you see everyone else just fly through that section. And like, we were just barely getting along. And I don't, I mean, I guess it would be more rideable in the daytime, but at the same time, people that hit that in the daytime, were in the Sandy section at nighttime. So it's probably a trade-off, but yeah, I don't, that was definitely miserable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We walked for forever. It probably wasn't that many miles, but it seemed like an eternity. That's that's the worst part is sometimes just the terrain especially 40 hours into it so you guys are kind of agreeing it was like mostly the terrain that really got to you yeah the wind the, was cold yeah the wind in that I, willows section it was cold i mean it was probably mid 30s low 30s your feet are wet because you're walking through a creek and wind just in your face because you're walking up this big drainage so the wind is just coming down that canyon the thermal still so it was probably 20 mile an hour wind 30 something degrees and you're just walking your bike up a hill. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't enjoy it very much. <laughs> I was pretty psyched when it was over. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Whatever, whatever type three or four fun is, that's what I was having at that time. <laughs> yeah. And just like one foot in front of the other, like just keep on. Yeah. I, I, I couldn't ride at that point. I think I was just too taxed and the wind, like just it, it crushed my soul. Like, like, I just felt like it was this, it was just sandy enough. I was just tired enough. And the wind was just strong enough. The combo prevented me from even trying to get on my bike. Like maybe if it wasn't windy and maybe if it wasn't cold, I would have tried to get on and off my bike and ride. But I was just like, no, I'm not doing it. I can't. And clearly other people rode it. There's just no way they hiked that much faster than us. Um, but yeah, that was really hard. Um, and I think, you know, another, on a different day, maybe it wouldn't have been so bad. Another section I really struggled with, that I think was the hardest part for me, like physically, but I wasn't necessarily at a low point, was um, from Akatia Wells to Debrego Springs, which was 19 miles of pavement. And Jesse and I were really, really trying to get to a burrito by 10 p.m. Um, and so we were kind of hammering. And I just, I was like, oh, 19 miles on pavement, like how bad could it be? But it was like, 
half of it was uphill and it was the headwind was brutal and it was just like I was really suffering but I wasn't emotionally low I just it was just so hard did you get to the burrito no we missed by one minute but you're kidding because we spent about 10 minutes deciding whether or not we should go for the burrito because it was kind of Ocotillo Wells is a resupply quote unquote at a bar which doesn't have much to offer then there's the known resupply of a Mexican restaurant in Borrego Springs at 19 miles away, which closed 19 miles, two hours. We were like, oh, that should be doable. But the wind was just, I mean, it was 10 mile an hour in your small ring, like into the wind. So we we're like, it's going to be pushing it. And we didn't know what other options there were. So we just, after 10 minutes of layering up and kind of deliberating, we were like, all right, let's go for it. And we kind of split up then and about, halfway into it i was like we're not making it <laughs> yeah. No. I, yeah we were going so slow at that point our like our average speed wasn't anywhere near where it needed to be and i'm like well if it's uphill the whole way we're gonna miss it by a half an hour probably but you know we got to just keep going uh and jesse was quite a bit ahead of me um i was riding as hard as i could and every once in a while i'd see his <clears> light <throat> and then i think you stopped to put headphones in that didn't work is that right yeah 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 and my one if you ask me my air for the thing so i I bought corded headphones because it's easier on the battery on your phone rather than like Bluetooth headphones. Well, I've had this iPhone for like a year now and just now realize it doesn't have like a normal headphone jack. So I was trying sitting there 38 hours in with no sleep, trying to plug my round like 3.5 millimeter cord into a lightning <laughs> so oh I didn't get to listen to music at all when I really needed it. So that was yeah so well he was messing with that. I I passed him and I just said, Yeah, I'll, I'll, I, I just assumed he'd just catch me and pass me again. But it was it was quite a few miles later because not that long after that, I think we hung a right and it was downhill for a while. I almost got blown off the road like giant frame bag and a, I had a tail fin rack on there and I almost got blown off the road because the wind was so strong. And then it was just a couple miles before Borrego Springs, Jesse caught back up to me and then we're like, oh, we're really we like we might make it. And we were hammered like as hard as I could possibly ride and like like, okay, all we got to do is go around this big traffic circle. And then there we are. The traffic circle is gigantic. And we're rolling around this thing. And I'm like watching the clock tick by. I'm like, we're just barely going to miss it. No way. And sure enough. Yeah. It was they were like, there. They were there. Yeah. 10 yeah, 01, we rolled up and uh, uh, they were in the, they were in there with the lights off, counting the cash register. So we missed it. Heartbreaker. <laughs> Heartbreaker. <laughs> Yeah, heartbreaker. I was so looking forward to a burrito. But, you know, at that point, I'd kind of written off. And then I had this sudden, like, oh, we might get it. But it's okay if we don't. And then, you know, still super bummed. Yeah, I think we handled it pretty well. Like, we never went all in on it. Like, we never were 100% convinced we'd get it. So, yeah, I think we shrugged it off and both spent about 30 bucks inside of a little convenience store next door. Okay, well, at least you got something. It was a liquor store. Yeah. (laughs) Child, Child labor. Yeah, there was like a young a young kid working in there with his dad. I, I Jesse, how old do you think that kid was? Like thirteen? Eight or nine? No, I think he was oh, young. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he might oh. he was pretty young. Yeah. Like late uh, at night. Great. Yeah, hey, uh, can I check your ID? <laughs> yeah, basically. Yep. No, I want to see your ID, kid. <laughs> oh man, that sounds brutal. That sounds absolutely brutal. Yeah. And no hostage for us. No. Yeah. No. And so it was this, I feel like these ultras, it's like this complete battle between euphoria and complete like despair. Did you, 
was it kind of in in that realm or am I just you know missing it no I think that's you definitely have to go into it thinking that like you I've only done a few of these now but like I just know there's going to be points where I'm miserable there's going to be points where I'm laughing out loud talking to myself yelling like this one I will say I feel like I was way more even through the whole thing like I don't have any moments where I wanted to sit down and cry and I don't know if that was because I wasn't alone in some of the lowest moments where it was like, just as men, we're not going to just sit down and cry in front of this other guy. You know what I mean? Like I would have, I, feel like I, it was just, I managed it better for sure. And the highs weren't as high maybe, but there also wasn't the lows. Like I didn't feel like I ever had to like dig real deep and get myself out of it. I, I feel the same way. I've definitely, like Jesse said, you have to expect from the experience that I've had that you're going to just have this roller coaster of emotions. Like, and you don't know what the time scale is going to be between these two things. Like you could feel great and five minutes later feel horrible, or, or it could be hours later. Um, and I felt like I was pretty even throughout the whole event, which was uh, kind of surprising to me because I usually have to sort of battle through a little bit more emotional struggle. Um, I worked a lot on my mindset going into this event. Um, well, I've just been doing that in general and I think that paid off for me or maybe I was really lucky, but yeah, I didn't, I, I feel the same way as Jesse. I, I sort of felt a little bit more even throughout the whole thing, especially given how little sleep we had. I don't know what Jesse's plan was, but I did not plan to sleep as little as I did. It just worked out that way. I went into it planning on not sleeping at all. If anything, I was thinking 20, 40 minutes. And that was kind of, I didn't carry sleep kit or anything. So that was, it was very, very much like a nap plan for me. I knew I could do 30 something hours without sleep. And then I figured, yeah, if I got 30 minutes thrown in there, I'd be happy, which kind of worked out to about what we did. I mean, 40, 45 minutes. Yeah. Jesse, how, is that from complete experience? You know, like when you say, I know I can go 30 hours without sleeping, or was that just more of a, you looked up, how long can a human go <laughs> without sleep? <laughs> no. So really it's based on one experience. So this is really only my third kind of ultra race years ago i did i tried to do colorado trail race back in like 2012 but that was just as like a naive like mountain biker and i was like oh yeah me and my buddy are gonna go single speed it so that failed miserably oh but last september i did a there's a road ultra called the silver state 508 and it's like a qualifier for race across america and i did that in the self-supported category so it's a 500 mile essentially out and back road race all carrying all your own stuff and i did it's what 33 hours I did kind of straight through. So I knew what I could do. I knew I could push that far because I had done it before. And that was going fast. I mean, that was 16, 17 mile an hour average for the whole thing. Thanks. So that was definitely kind of the bar. And I was like, well, I've done it once. I can do it again. That was very much the mindset. So a shallow sample pool, but <laughs> I'd done it once. So I figured I could do it again. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. Cause I always wonder, you know, how that's, what's cool is I wonder just knowing how hard I can push just on a daily basis, like how hard could I go when I have 400 miles in front of me, you know, like how deep can you really push it? Because some, most of these races you can, there's, you, you always, you, you really can't find your limit with these 50 to hundred to 150 mile races. You can definitely find a limit physically, but finding this limit of like lack of sleep, where's my food? how do you stay cognizant? Like, how do you can continue to stay able to 
problem solve and stay on top of the game, you know? So I think there's so many cool things that go into these ultras, but that was a curiosity, you know, it's just having that experience. Yeah. You, you would know 30 hours, you can not sleep. And Dana, you thought you were completely, you know, gonna, gonna have eight hours. No, well, I definitely wasn't planning on eight hours. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So for me in the past, I've done a, a few of these things and I guess the first time that I tried to ride like 48 hours or more with no sleep was the first, the only time I did the AZT 300. Um, you know, I just planned on riding straight through and, and I, I couldn't, like I was hallucinating. I fell asleep one time, like, and woke up like standing with my head on my handlebars and couldn't figure out even which direction to go. Like, so, and I, so I've, I've had experiences where lack of sleep has worked out fine. I've had other ones where it's just really unpredictable. So I, I didn't know what to expect. Um, about a year and a half ago, I developed thyroid problems and I wouldn't say that there are issues with sleep in my thyroid. I don't know if that's true, but at that time I was like, I'm done doing the sleep deprivation thing. I need to like take care of my body. Uh, but like a, a couple months before the event, I was like, well, I think I can finish in 48 hours, but if I want to do that, I have to go without sleep. So I'll just try and go for it. Like I, I believed that that was possible based on looking at people I knew and what their finish times were. And then leading into the race, the weather was so shitty. I was like, okay, probably not going to be a fast year. There's snow everywhere. There's water everywhere. Like I can't go more than 48 hours without sleep. And I've never even made it 48. So I brought a sleep kit, a minimal one. I had a sleeping bag and a bivy and a pillow. And I just thought, well, I'll just, I'm prepared to lay down if I need to. I sort of thought maybe I would sleep four hours each night and then just try and ride fast otherwise but I wasn't at all tired the first night. I was like, well, I'm fine. I'm just going to keep going until I can't. And then I was wet and cold. And I'm like, I'm not laying down because I'm just going to freeze. I should just keep moving. Just like, that's the safest thing for me to do. So the first night was no big deal. Um, and then I think Jesse and I probably got a little bit cocky the second night thinking, oh, we have such a big lead. I think we can lay down for a little while. We started to get a little bit greedy. I don't think either one was probably really needed to. Like I wasn't really fighting the sleep demons, but it was pretty tempting. Um, and so we laid down, we set the timer for an hour and 15 minutes. I think Jesse fell asleep immediately. At least that was my impression. And I just, I just laid there staring at the ceiling and I probably got 10 minutes of sleep in that hour and 15 minutes. And then we packed up, not quickly and got rolling again. So yeah, I had 10 minutes of sleep over the 53 hours we were out there. Oh, dang. Okay. I didn't know it was to that extent. Yeah. That was what happened. Uh, it wasn't the plan, I, but I just, that's what worked out and probably I could have done it without, but I don't think I could like assume that that would happen again. Yeah. I think we both kind of, when we decided to sleep, it was, we had a pretty good gap because the next people were still 20 something miles back, which that 20 miles had just taken us two hours. And we were also wondering kind of what their resupply, we were pretty convinced they were going to miss that resupply and also miss the one in Borrego Springs that we had just hit. So we were thinking like they were kind of doomed. Like even if they did ride two hours up on us, like what if they, they'd have to sit there and wait for food was kind of our thinking. And I don't know that we would have been any slower had we not slept, like in retrospect, like we probably should have just kept moving. We were thinking like, oh, we'll take a quick nap. We'll feel good again. We'll move faster. And like now knowing what that terrain was, I don't know that it would have helped. It didn't seem to. It didn't help, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe we would have been even slower. But yeah, I think we kind of got a little greedy and cocky at that point, thinking we had a pretty big gap and we could catch a catch a sleep. I think if we had had people 
at least if we had perceived that people were on our ass, I think that would have maybe changed how we rode. I mean, at the time I felt like I was riding as hard as I could or walking as hard as I could, but I think if I felt like, Oh, someone's, someone's about to catch us, I probably would have found a way to, to ride harder because that happened later after the summer. Yeah. I was going to say as foreshadowing, like we definitely had more in us because later on in the race, when we did feel threatened, we kind of kicked it up a gear. So there was definitely some in there that we could have tapped earlier, I think. Yeah. So yeah, this is an interesting story. So we were walking forever in the cold and the headwind up this sandy wash and we get to the top as the sun's coming down and we'd kind of laid sat down and had some food and then we we're like oh it's flat we're gonna be able to ride and then it was still like on the bike and off the bike and then we're looking ahead and there's this huge hike of bike and we're like oh we gotta walk some more and we got to the top of that or at least shortly after that i like turned my phone on my plan was to like let my wife know roughly when i thought i would finish because she was going to pick me up at the end and like i turned my phone on and like all of a sudden it was like ding 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 like i had all these notifications like people wishing me well and saying, you're doing great, da, 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 da. And suddenly like, as these notifications are just flying by on my phone, I get a message from my buddy Courtney with a picture of the tracker. And he says, I think you got somebody following you or something like that. And I looked at it and I was like, holy shit, they're like right on our ass. <laughs> and I, I looked at Jesse and I was like, dude, I think they're like two and a half miles behind us. And at that moment I was done. I was like, fuck it. I, I, I don't care. Like, Jesse, you look like you're feeling fresh. Just go. I don't remember exactly what I said to him. He might remember, but I definitely communicated that I was out. <laughs> I was like, just, yeah, you, for sure. You said yeah. you, I think your words were like, I don't have it in me. You're like, I don't yeah. have the fight in me. And yeah. I kind of, I think you think I just took off, but I, we had, there was a little pep talk. Like at that point I was like, well, we got to at least try. We've come this far. Like, yeah, it seemed like, like, yeah, you're probably right. Like my memory is so fuzzy after not sleeping, but in my mind, like Jesse looked like he had the eye of the tiger and he was going to take off. And I, I think it took me a few minutes for me to come around to the fact that like, oh, okay, like I got to try. And suddenly I had a just complete change in mindset. I was like, okay, just embrace where you're at and just see what happens. Like maybe they catch you and maybe you don't, but you can't just like throw the towel in a ride slow because you're tired right now. And so then suddenly like I had, I probably set an FTP on the way back. <laughs> um, I felt fantastic after that. Like, I think we rode pretty fast to the end. Yeah. 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 And then that brings me, this was a question that's been brewing for a while. Like, were you at, were you two at the front from the start? Um, I was close to the front. Um, so when we started, we were walking in the snow for an hour and a half, I think. Roughly. I saw that. Yeah. Um, like you couldn't ride. There were a couple of people who were trying and like, it was interesting because like, First of all, we start at the coffee shop. The road's covered in ice. We got to ride up this hill. It's super icy. And I was like super scared of falling down and like just crashing and like ruining the whole thing. So I'm like kind of like being super safe. And it was weird to watch how everybody was like trying to get to the front. And then I was trying to like keep an eye on them, but I didn't want to race up there. And it was like slippery. And then we get to the snow and everybody's walking. Um, and I was like, wow, fucking people are just charging <laughs> through this. I'm like, it's a long race. I'm... And then I just kept passing people as I was walking and then we got to the mud and I, I couldn't believe actually how fast people were riding in the mud. And I was thinking, wow, that's like, it's pretty taxing to like dig deep as you're riding up through the mud. And so kind of people got away from me and then somehow I got up. I like, then I just slowly started picking people off as we got on this little pavement section. And then before I knew it, I was like in the front group with a couple, a few other people, one of them, which was a 13 year old Eden. Um, and then around mile 22, 
I was a little bit ahead. One person I was with stopped at a resupply. I didn't mean anything. And I just went ahead and I was like, holy shit, I guess I'm in front. And then, and then I was in front from basically mile 22 with, with, or without Jesse, either Jesse was a mile or two in front of me, or at one point he was several miles in front of me later that night. But, uh, yeah, I was either in first or second from mile 22 until the end. Dang, that's a lot of pressure. And Jesse, was that kind of the same, uh, kind of the same pattern as you? No, I kind of sat back a little bit more and it was probably for the better because I do have a tendency to kind of go out pretty hard. So in once we were off the bike, just walking, like that's not my strength. So I'm not going to push it that hard. And you could tell there was people that were like, jogging their bikes through the snow two miles into this 400 mile race so i was very much like go for it and i kind of kept tabs so i would think i was probably 10th at that point and then at the 20 mile mark i had maybe moved up a spot or two and then really it wasn't right until when i first saw dana there were still a few people between me and him just before that resupply and i kind of got away on a little descent not really trying but it was paved my bike setup was just quicker. So I rolled into that resupply. That's when I first saw Dana. I knew I had passed everyone else. And I honestly kind of like, we talked a little bit, like he was like mixing his carb drink and I kind of wanted him to roll out. At that point, I didn't want to be in first place. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't either. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's a weird one. So like, and there was a few times where I was just kind of not soft pedaling, but like I was in no hurry to catch him knowing that that big pavement stretch was coming up. So like tactically that was where I wanted to take the lead was at the like 120 mile mark. So at 50 miles when I'm in second, like that wasn't ideal to me, but I certainly didn't want to be in first at that point. Like just based on my bike setup, I didn't, it either meant I was going out too hard or it just wasn't what I expected. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel I, despite being in front, I feel like I did a good job of moderating my effort. I knew that if I, continued to feel good throughout the whole race. I, I, I expected I would do pretty well. I didn't know if I could win. I believed that it was possible, but I wasn't like assuming that. I didn't think I would be in the front early on. I think typically my strengths would be later in the race when everybody else has gone too hard and I'm just still sort of diesel engine style. Um, so when I was in the lead, I was like, well, I need to slow down even more because I don't expect to be up here. And I think I did a really good job of like not like not fixating on it. I did ex keep expecting after I saw Jesse the first time to just come whipping by me on this like headwind uh, pavement section. <laughs> I kept looking back and I'm like, where the fuck is he? Because <laughs> um, I felt like I really backed off. There was a moment uh, shortly after that resupply where I had a little hamstring adductor cramps. I was like, ooh, I need to just back off a little bit. Um, so it was a while later. Uh, now now I know why it took him a while to catch up to me because he wanted to keep me keep me in the front. But yeah, it was interesting. It's not what I expected. And I feel like I did a pretty good job of not letting it get to me emotionally it just was what it was and i was totally fine if somebody else passed me in fact i wanted someone else to be in front um so did you guys have a heart rate monitor i did yeah yeah i i usually do uh i decided to just use my whoop strap as the heart rate monitor just to minimize the shit on me um I knew that the whoop strap is not great for actually getting accurate heart rate data, but I wanted afterwards to sort of be able to have a, sort of a rough estimate of the strain. Yeah. Um, I didn't, I didn't pay that much attention to it. Occasionally I would look at it. Um, but it generally reads a lot higher, especially on bouncy terrain than a chest strap. So, so I did have it on me, but I knew sometimes it wasn't, it wasn't hundred percent accurate. Yeah. Cause I didn't have power. Jesse, did you have power? I did. Yeah. 
Okay, now we're getting into some fun yeah. things with Jesse. You had power and heart rate. Um, so I'm kind of coming from a perspective. If I was doing this race, I would want to stay. If I had a power meter, I'd want to stay in my like zone two. Yeah. Right. That's like optimistic. I mean, you're going to go over it at times, obviously, just given the terrain. But if you can average zone two, that's like you're going to be at the front of one of these races. If you can do 50 hours averaging the zone two, like that's really hard to do. Yep. Yeah. Totally. And so, like, um, what Jesse, if you don't mind, you know, so that everyone who's listening can totally get all of your stats and know, okay, oh, so Jesse's uh pushing this uh next race, I'm definitely gonna stay in that zone. What was if you don't mind like going into it, what was your average wattage and heart rate? Uh average heart rate was actually pretty high. I want to say it was like 110, 112 which is pretty high. I mean, I can like 200 Watts. I can sit at 110, 115 beats a minute. It's kind of like low end of, you know, zone two, like cruise. I could do that all day. So that was actually higher than I would have expected, especially given. So the first few, like 20 miles I had auto pause on. So it kind of screwed with my average speed. Cause it was considered myself stopped a lot of the time. Cause it kept yeah. auto pausing when you're walking your bike. Um, after that, I don't know what the exact average watt wattage was, but the IF was like 0.54. So okay. that, I mean, you figure that's 50% FTP kind of thing. And my FTP sea level, I'm like 300. So I don't know, 4.7 watts per kilo, somewhere right around there. So half of that, I mean, so 150, 160 watt average is probably right where I sat for the whole thing. For the whole thing. That's mm -hmm. crazy. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Versus, so in comparison that the silver state, the 508 road one that I did, like I said, the average speed, I want to say was like 16.9 miles an hour for 33 hours. And I think my average power was like 189. So quite a bit higher, obviously, yep. but also double the speed, you know? Totally. And it's hard to kind of compare stats when the terrain is so different too. And when you're walking, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And when you're walking a bunch, you know, so, um, but it, it's always intrigued me, you know, like, I wonder what it would be like, what, what Watts? Cause I do like Dana's really put in my head, like these ultras, you know, I, I want to pursue these ultras here in the next few years. And every time I like get on my road bike with the power meter and I'm like, at 220, 250 Watts. I'm like, can I hold this for a while? You know, like if it, if it was an ultra, obviously probably not, but it's fun to think about like, man, how, how would my stats kind of be, what would my heart rate be? What would my Watts be for 40 hours? You know, it's, it's crazy. And so I, yeah, I think as a rule of thumb, everyone says like 0.5 is kind of like your 24 hour pace is what I have heard like 24 hour tts and stuff like that so half of threshold which seems about right to me i mean give or take the terrain again but it's it's lower than you'd think for sure and it'll taper like you're never going to have a perfect split you know what i mean like so i was definitely hitting climbs at threshold or above early on but then later you're doing tempo up them versus sweet spot you know so it's totally you just plan on it and it's at the end, 150 watts is going to feel about like all you got. 
Yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah. I, I was just looking at training peaks to sort of see if I could get some data I didn't look at. So again, my whoop strap was probably over estimating my heart rate. My average heart rate was 129. Wow. My, my max is only like 165 because I'm older. <laughs> um, so that, so, but that's probably high. So then the next, so my IF on training peaks was 0.67, which is substantially higher than what I expected, but that's, it's exaggerated because I know the whoop strap was registering yeah. way higher than it should have been. And I didn't have power. And what was your, uh, obviously you were at 21. 21. Stress score on whoop. Uh, yeah. Like I've actually never seen exactly 21, but I, it was, I think it was 20.8 or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and yeah. it was multiple days too. And, yeah. um, Dana, because you have, uh, well, Jesse, do you have a whoop? I don't know. No, yeah. good. Yeah, I no. do, but yeah. <laughs> sometimes I, I get a little... so I have trainer road and all that. So like, I don't have the heart rate data, but like TSS, it was just under a thousand. It was like nine hundred and seventy was the TSS <sighs> for people that don't do whoop but do the other. Do the other such. Yeah. So night. Oh my god, that's crazy. Yeah. That's um, so double my biggest week, pretty much for the whole training block, like <laughs> in one go. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, my heart rate tss which i can't i don't remember exactly how training peaks separates that out from tss it's not exactly the same thing right i don't think so I, okay so probably an estimation i mean based off your history it probably gets ballpark yeah so mine was 2900 yeah that's not that's different <laughs> yeah you are like the fittest human on earth now <laughs> i don't even know what that means yeah <laughs> um i'm i'm still learning too but um and so Dana, how, how's your uh, recovery been on the whoop? You know, have you, have you hit a green yet? I have. Okay. Um, I've been having not great whoop scores the last couple, few, several weeks, even before stagecoach was having me a little bit concerned. I've had the last year or so sleep has been a real challenge for me. Um, so like I spent a lot of time just laying in bed, not sleeping, uh, <laughs> So I've been doing all kinds of things, trying to sleep hygiene and, you know, supplements every once in a while, just trying to figure out why I'm not sleeping. I don't know if it's my thyroid. I don't know if it's stress and anxiety, some combination thereof, but leading into stagecoach <laughs> scores were bad. And that made me think oh, I'm totally screwed in the night before stagecoach. I barely slept. So I want you to think about this. I went through 53 hours of riding. I only had 10 minutes of sleep and I barely slept the night before that because I was sleeping on a hotel room floor and there was this loud drip and I, I just couldn't, I like put pillows over my head and I just could not sleep. I probably only slept two hours that night. Dang. So I woke up in the red and then did the ride. And then afterwards, I actually, I, I, I got decent sleep a few nights afterwards and I've had, I've had green the last few days, which has been nice. That's really good. Yeah. You needed that. Yeah. I mean, it's all for me, it's really sleep dependent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Jesse, how have you been feeling quite after? Pretty good. So like we said, I haven't done any big rides, um, kind of sticking an hour, hour and a half, kind of just building back up. I took five days completely off the bike afterwards, which is like the longest break in a year probably for me. And then kind of just started adding some intensity, just like some little VO2 stuff and actually feel really strong. Like joints all feel back 100%, no knee pain or anything like that. And yeah, like VO2 numbers are great. Like second highest five minute power I've ever had, just kind of 
seeing what I could do. So it's being this early in the year, I'm pretty optimistic that I got a lot to build on and no like injuries from that, you know? So it's a good yeah. spot to be. That's awesome. Cause recovery is, I think the most important when you're going into an ultra and after an ultra, I think if you were to push it too early on, you're just going to be digging a hole deeper and deeper and you'll never see good numbers until you the take five the days off the yeah. bike. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think I took a whole week off after stagecoach. And early on, when I got on the bike, I was like, "Wow, I feel like Superman." And, until I until I didn't. <laughs> yeah, I went, so I, I went and did Opinions and Pines uh, sort of recon ride, and my plan was to just ride super mellow. It was seventy miles. Yeah, basically got my ass kicked. It was like ninety five degrees, and at the last half of that, I was like, "Oh my gosh, I'm not going to make back to the car ever." <laughs> it's yeah. just completely shattered i was like oh i guess i'm not recovered <laughs> i know it's funny how you notice that thing you know notice how your body is actually responding you could feel great you could wake up you're happy you're energetic and then you get on the bike and you're just like oh this is not the day for me yeah other than my hands and my feet the, the, my body feels really good my head feels good my back feels good like i feel like good on the bike i kind of feel like I, I don't i can't back this up but i feel like i could really hammer for five minutes and feel absolutely fantastic but if i tried to go for 20 i'd probably just like boom. that's why you just try for five like me yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So i haven't so i haven't tried that but yeah <laughs> but yeah that 70 mile ride on easter was uh yeah put me in the hole some more yeah yeah well speaking of opinions and pines jesse are you uh are you gonna be doing that one no i didn't make the list and i don't know anybody involved with it or anything so. <laughs> No, no, it's not on the calendar for this year. I don't think, um, just being so soon after this one, I got a couple in June that I might ball in, but yeah, at this point it's all on Dana. God, I'm on the wait list. You are, uh, you know, you're, you're not that far off. I think maybe there's your 10th right now on the wait list. We're churning through the wait list at the moment. This is well, the time when everybody starts to drop out and I'm only giving people 24 to 48 hours to reply that they're in and most of them don't reply. And then I just move on to the next person. Nice. Oh, well, so I'm not prepared get, get to all. work. Yeah. Yeah. I was it's, like, no, I was just like, you know what? I'm not, I'm not in pinions and pines. I'm cool with that. I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll focus on my intervals and get ready for sea otter and whiskey and, um, but I mean, man, if my name hits, I, I think I'll do it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why a lot of people don't reply is they're like, oh, I wasn't assuming I was going to get in because I was, you know, 30th on the wait list or whatever. And so they just kind of write it off. I will say for anyone who's listening, if you're ever on a wait list and someone asks you if you want the spot, it would be a really good idea to reply yes or no. It really pisses me off when people don't reply. Just reply. It's easy. Yeah. 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 Because people, and then the thing that aggravates me is like collectively on a whole, like people beg to get on a wait list. They give you a hard time. They're on a wait list. And then you offer them a spot and they don't reply. And I'm not, I don't know if those are the same people who begged me that aren't replying. I don't keep track of that. But it like, all I know is I get bugged occasionally, which I'm totally fine with. And then, and then a bunch of people don't reply. <laughs> it pisses me off, you know, because I'm just doing it because I want to do it. And it's, it's a, it's a pain in the ass to sort of keep track of all that stuff. And then to get no reply, I'm just like, come on, come on. Reply. You bug, you know, you wanted to be on the wait list. Just tell me you're not going to do it. That's fine. That's why you get the big bucks though, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, And then (laughs) I can turn through the wait list quicker. Cause like for you, like if you knew two weeks ago that you could do it, that could change things. But if I tell someone like two weeks beforehand, the likelihood of them saying yes is really 
low. So if every time I offer a spot, I got to wait 48 hours before I offer it to the next person, it just slows everything down. So it's, it's, it's inconvenient for the whole, for everyone on the wait list. It could yeah. prevent us from actually filling it when we filled it in 20 minutes or whatever. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then there's, you know, 50 people on the wait list. And if we don't actually have everyone show up that day, that'll be disappointing. And it's going to be because people didn't reply fast enough from the wait list. So listening. If you're listening, reply to Dana. Or anyone for any wait list. Just, you know, just, just reply. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm going to start keeping a blacklist. <laughs> then you can't <laughs> sign up. That's right. You're out. You're out. You're out. You better make a new email address. Yeah. Oh, um, well, we could we could dive. I mean, I have so many questions for you guys. I mean, we've been rolling for a little over an hour. Dana, when did you get on? Five four fifty. Um, yeah, it was just after that. Yeah, so I apologize for being late. I, ah. Today's been a rough, today's been a rough day for me. I have a story to tell you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had to reschedule this meeting because I told you guys I'm giving a, a math geek talk. Yeah, three o'clock. At three, so that I could, you know, and then I needed a, you know, a little time to sort of catch my breath and then I'd get back on. So this morning I went to Macy's, my favorite local coffee shop at 9 a.m. Long line out the door. It's pretty typical. It's on my walk to campus and I'm waiting in line and I'm just like, there's no one around I know. So I pull out my phone like everybody does these days and I'm just looking at it, sort of thinking about my day, what's going to happen today. I'm like, well, I got about six hours before my talk. My slides aren't quite done. I got to make a few figures and, you know, basically what I'll do today. It'll be nice relaxing. I'll have time to go grab lunch. And there's like a few people in front of me. So I'm just kind of chilling out. And then I get a message on my phone as I'm staring at it asking, where are you? Are you coming soon? And I'm like, oh, this is the message from the person who's the organizer for the talk I'm about to give. And I immediately reply, I'm like, isn't my talk at three? And she's like, no, it's right now. And it was 9.02. It started at nine. Whoops. And I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> so I immediately just bolt out the door and start sprinting to my office. It's like I don't know, a, like a five-minute jog, a 10-minute walk to get there. And as I'm like sprinting to get to my office, I'm like, fuck, my slides aren't even done. I haven't looked over them. I'm going to show up late. Uh, so, yeah, I got on my Zoom talk 10 minutes late. Everybody was Dang still it. waiting patiently. And I immediately was like, sorry, everybody. <laughs> I totally screwed this up. And my slides aren't even done and I haven't looked over them. So I'm totally going to wing it. And it, it, it wasn't a disaster. That's <laughs> so good. It went okay. So I made us wait for no reason because I gave my talk this morning. And then I was sitting in my office so that we could do this. And then I realized that there was construction going on in the building in the afternoon. So it's been a day where I've been late to everything. <laughs> That's all right. It's only Zoom. It's not real life. It's right. Yeah, yeah it's not real life. And I think, I think of all these kinds of things as just practice for bikepacking because like, oh, yeah. a thing happened that I wasn't expecting. And now I have, to, solve. I have to adapt and problem solve and just embrace the situation. Or, or maybe bikepacking has given you the tools to deal with life. Hopefully it's, it's uh, you know. <laughs> Give and take. Biotic, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and as I'm sitting out here too, I was like, oh, it's a beautiful day. I'm going to sit outside and totally forgot, you know, I live right next to an airport. So I don't know if you've heard it. I can't, I can't hear it now. Great. Good. Okay. Then I'm thinking, sweet. Now I'm, you know, the listeners are hearing. (laughs) And my dog's coming in and out of the door. It's fine. The dogs are good. Dogs are good. Yeah. Yeah. Planes. And then I, I don't hear it though at all. 
and then people with souped up cars going down the road way too fast. I got kids, you know, I'm going to get, I'm going to start throwing rocks. <laughs> speed bumps. You need speed bumps. Yeah. yeah, you do. You do. Stop signs aren't doing the trick. Um, But yeah, no, it's all good. And I'm, I'm glad we're sitting here and hearing the story and your guys's stagecoach is super interesting to listen to. And I'm, that's why I have both you guys because you came in at the same time. So I feel like you had the same, but different kind of journey together, you know, and it's a shared, shared experience that, you know, you guys kind of had together. Yeah, yeah. That's not at all what you like these events. That's not what you're signing up for. Like you can't expect that. Or I mean, that's certainly not what I, I go there to beat everyone, you know, or at least to do my best and finish on my own and wherever that is. So it's, it was very unexpected, which is probably why it's so special. Absolutely. Um, do you think this is the first um, duo win um, in, in bikepacking history? No. So it's it's happened before. And I think Dana actually mentioned that it had happened at Stagecoach before. Because we talked about it when we agreed to kind of roll in together. We're like, well, is that like a cop-out? Like, is that Are people going to think that's weird? And I think Dana mentioned that it had happened a few years back. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it was two or three years ago, but Greg Dunham, who you interviewed two two episodes ago, finished with Tim Tate. They finished together. So even at Stagecoach, it's happened before, and it's certainly happened in other races before. I mean, I I know that there are probably people who are like, oh, you, you pansies, why don't you just race each other? Um, you know what? I, I don't fucking care. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't care. <laughs> I mean, now I don't, don't care. I mean, if someone had said, you know, before the event, oh, you know, would you be willing to finish with someone? I'd probably like, no, I'm going to race. But then you're in that situation. And like, I, it, that became more important to me to have that shared experience than to worry about winning. Like, I, I didn't care anymore. Um, and I don't think it was just because I was tired. It was just, it just, you know, like what you want, at least for what I wanted out of the experience had, had evolved. And, you know, and I'm super happy with how it turned out. Totally. Yeah, there's, no, there's no prize money in these events. There's not a trophy. There's not, there's probably a hundred people in the world that could name the winner's name. You know what I mean? So it's not like you're doing it for yourself. And so if you can get something different out of it for yourself or make it what you will, you know, it's yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, for me, it's about growing and having an experience and like it, it, I can't imagine it having gone better for me. And so I like, I have zero regrets, none. Good. And you can't really, at 40, 45 hours, you know, trying to drop this guy who is just as fast as you, you know, it's like, all right, well, we're just as fast and we don't have the energy to try to drop each other, especially coming into the finish line. I, mean, I think we, I think we could have, if that had been what we wanted to get out of it, we could have duped it out. I think that would have been exciting too. Um, the first ever sprint finish. <laughs> yeah, I, that's probably happened too. Um, so I, and I think, and I respect, you know, I, I mean, even Jesse and I, maybe in a separate situation, we would not, we wouldn't du duplicate that. No. Yeah. Um, I just, I think it's just completely unreasonable to expect that to even work out, even if you wanted it to, as like we said before. And so um, I think, yeah, I think we could have duped it out. I mean, I, we found the energy to, you know, sort of battle, run away from, from third place. Uh, so I think we could have found the energy to sort of race each other, but you know, it's just not what, what happened in the end. I commend we you. Were, That's we awesome. before that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, 
Well, any last um, takers for the audience, you know, for everyone who's listening, is there anything, you know, that, you know, we didn't touch um, during our conversation that you guys, you know, have been kind of chewing on or. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I've, I mean, I've had a lot of, you know, all these events sort of make me reflect on the experience and like who I am and, um, you know, I'm, I'm, as I said a bunch of times now, I'm really happy with how it went, but like, I also learned some things out there sort of about myself. Um, and, and I think that's really cool to sort of put yourself in a situation. Let me back up a little bit, like bike riding on the surface is not that hard, right? If you're just going to pedal a bike and turn the handlebars every once in a while, it's, it's not that complicated, but like an event like this, you kind of sign up and you really have no idea what's going to happen. You don't know if you're going to finish. And so I like putting myself in those situations where I don't know what the outcome is going to be. I don't even know if I can succeed in it. And I encourage people to sort of like, doesn't have to be bikepacking, but put yourself in a situation where like, you have no idea what the outcome is going to be. You're not even sure if you can finish, you know, like with a shorter bike race, you barring a crash or a mechanical, like if you're doing a 50 or hundred mile bike race, you're probably going to finish. And then your success is basically a function of like, what place did I come in? How, how did I do relative to what I think I would do? But for these events, they're so long and they're so different. The success metric is completely different. And you just literally don't know if you're going to be able to finish or if what you think is going to happen is going to happen. There's so many things that go wrong with your body and your bike and everything else. And it's like totally different. So it feels a lot more like alpine climbing to me. And I sort of think that's why the kinds of relationships like Jesse and I developed during the relation during the race happen. Like that's probably not going to happen during a 50 or hundred mile bike race. Cause it's not the same sort of like experience. And so, yeah, go, go have an adventure. And it doesn't matter whether you finish first or tied for first or last or anywhere in between. I think it's just an amazing way to sort of go experience things about yourself and learn things about other people and get to know them and then see the world. Like that's the only time I'll probably ever ride my bike through downtown San Diego. <laughs> um, and in the desert and so yeah it's just a really cool experience yeah and i think every time i do one of these which isn't that many now like you learn a ton about yourself and also you just come away so grateful like just not for the result but just for the opportunity really is like what i get like i feel so thankful that like my body can do that you know what i mean like that i'm able to put in the work that i can afford it that there's people around me that enable me to do that. Like it's de that's definitely one of like the bigger, like more impactful things is just the gratitude for being where I'm at that I can pull that off, you know? Totally. I think that's why I want to do it too is yeah. I think it is a completely different um, success. You know, there, there's a different ranking. There's not like I'm going to race to try to take first place it's like i am going to continually push myself to be the best i can be at every point during a 400 mile race and the success is how well did i battle the adversity that you know came through the experience rather than how how fucking hard did i go and i took third place at this 100 mile race and i'm bummed that i didn't take first because my water bottle fell off. This is more like this whole journey of I'm getting my own food. I'm 
I'm meeting, you know, these random gas station clerks or restaurant, you know, employees who look at you like, what the hell are you doing? You know, walking into a store, probably dripped in sweat or have salt all over you and you're dirty and and you're uh, buying 10,000 calories of food that no one should eat. <laughs> yeah. 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 I remember I had one gas station attendant, like, what are you going to eat all this? I'm like, yeah, probably in the next couple hours. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, what? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's just so cool. You know, that's why I I'm just so intrigued with this ultra endurance form of, of cycling, you know, it's just so intriguing. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, Quinn, I know if you were at the start line, I think that you would want to win. And I think Jesse can probably say the same thing. Like I, I do too, uh, but it changes while you're out there and afterwards it's a little bit different, but I think the same sort of like, you know, you're signing up for a race and you want to do as good as you can. I think the feeling on the surface is probably the same initially. I mean, you can rationalize with yourself that it's not exactly the same, but you, I, at least I feel like almost the same as I would if I was signing up to a hundred mile race or a 50 mile race. Like I still want to race and win, but then like, then it all suddenly changes a few hours in. Um, and that's the part that I like, like you, you kind of throw those initial stressors and expectations out the window to some extent and, and recalibrate while you're out there. Cause I don't think I, at least I can't necessarily do it beforehand. I don't know if it's the same or not for Jesse. Yeah. I mean, you always have, you have the intent or the will or the desire or the plan, you know, but it's never that straightforward, but I think the people that are competing because there's people obviously that sign up to these races that just want to finish that aren't worried about racing at the front end but like if you've got that bug and it sounds like you do Quinn like you I mean if you're a racer you're a racer like you get next to anyone on a bike if you're on with your kid in tow on the bike path like you're probably gonna pedal a little harder like so it's just kind of being a victim of the game that you're gonna if you're a racer you got it and I think you'll be thrilled with what you can do and with what comes of it having that bug and then translating it into this like it's a it's pretty unique like it, i'm definitely hooked i've done road i've done mountain bike racing cross country all that stuff and this is just like rewarding on a way different level versus your tuesday night crit you know yeah i agree yeah in and, oh sorry go uh, ahead oh yeah and like you know i'm a, I'm a father now right and so the dedication and uh the discipline, you know, it, it wears on you when you're trying to trying to sustain such a high fitness, you know, to compete with these pros out there um, for these shorter distances. Like the discipline is real. You know, I, I do have to follow this strict training plan. I do have to have my FTP higher and higher and higher every week on week. You know, it's like there's a training block for a reason. You know, it's like with this sport in my like 50 to 100 mile off-road cycling there's these training blocks that i'm trying to stack but with this ultra marathon that is literally i can see it because i think that's my next venture is because life is a lot with business and you got to make sure your um, wife is happy your baby's happy you're happy you're fulfilled and it's when it starts taking too much of you you know, to, to have this standard and this like ideal, um, ideology of like, I am this professional fast racer, you know, it becomes a lot, but it's so easy for me to be like, Oh, two ultra marathons that I get to explore a 
crazy cool destination. I get two of them or three of them a year rather than racing twice a month, you know, and it's just like consistently traveling and training and eating right and doing all these things. That's what's so appealing too, is like, it's not, I'm not doing it for the race. I'm like doing it for this experience. Um, but yeah, like I will line up with the mindset of I'm going to try to beat everyone who's lined up as well. But I, I also want to make sure that I'm really good at eating right, hydrating, right. You know, on and off the bike, how's my bike set up? How are my packs set up? Like, that's so sick. And like, that's what I love to do anyway, you know? So it's just, it's right there. I'm just, you know, I'm like, ah, I'm 26. I'm still young and I still have that fast twitch muscle. So I can, you know, might as well use it while I'm here, but now yeah. why not? Like, you don't have to, you can be 13 years old and do a bike packing race. Yeah. Eden was amazing. That was really impressive. Yeah. 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 The, yeah. The racing, the ultra thing is it, it's super fun. It's, it's definitely different. Um, I really enjoy it. I, I think I said this last time you interviewed me, but I think one of my main motivations for doing races as opposed to just going bikepacking is that I feel a need to not be going away from my family that long and racing forces me to just go pile in the miles at twice as fast as I would, if I was just out tooling around exploring, there's a trade-off. Like I'm not experiencing it in the same way, but at least I'm doing it because I probably couldn't go toodle it and be gone for a week away from my family and do 400 miles or whatever, but I can go and I can hammer it and be done in 53 hours and at least have had some semblance of the experience I would want out there. I really don't like sleep deprivation stuff. I, I hate it. I'd rather, I, I kind of wish like that wasn't part of the game. I'd like to do distances where that's not an aspect of it. You're sleeping at least a little bit, but then again, I'm away from the family longer. And, you know, I, I work, you know, I work a shit ton and it's really hard to squeeze these things in. And so for my, my I, I'm competitive. I want to race, but I think really my main motivation is just to like do the experience sooner. <laughs> yeah. And just be home, like just cram it in there. Like, so I think that's, that, that's my main motivation. And I know I'm not the only one in that boat. No. So yeah, I start, I line up at the start. I'm competitive and I want to, and I want to race, but then I just want to get home. Yeah. Yeah. And something I learned about myself while I was out there, I guess I implicitly knew, but it became so clear to me is that part of my aspect of being competitive is like not being left behind versus wanting to be ahead, which I never really framed it that way for me. Like every time Jesse was ahead, I found it in me to like try and hammer and catch up to him. But like when I was ahead or when I was with him, I never felt like, oh, I need to drop Jesse now. And that's just an example of, I think, an aspect that's been with me my entire life. Um, like even when I was a wrestler, I was always thinking I was wrestling myself metaphorically. And I never really wanted to crush my opponent. Like that wasn't what it was about for me. More defensive. I didn't want to lose. And I, I, you know, I didn't realize that about myself. I don't know. Maybe it's some people might view that as sort of a weakness, but I, it, being conscious of it finally at age 48, I was like, oh, that's, that's different. I didn't notice that about myself before. Like I've always just thought I was competitive, but it's not the same as trying to crush everybody. <laughs> it's yeah, like, I don't want to be left behind. So I'm going to work really hard to catch up. That's different. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and I think more, more people than not, I think have that same, same kind of mentality. I actually, I have no idea. Maybe, maybe yeah. it's, 
I, I literally don't have any idea. I didn't, I didn't even realize it about myself. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm just a slow learner. It's possible. Yeah. I've really never thought about it that way, but I really don't like crushing my opponents either. <laughs> see, see now you're reflecting on it too. It's different. I mean, some people yeah. definitely want to crush people. Yeah. Like, all about it. And I don't know. That just doesn't give me pleasure. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's all about testing myself and somehow being in that situation where you're competing against other people provides an opportunity for that to happen. Totally. Yeah. I don't know. Jesse, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I get it. I mean, it's, it's that like kill or be killed kind of instinct. And some people, I don't know that I have it like that. I'll do anything at all costs. And that's probably what makes me not a great crit racer or road racer, you know, is that I don't have that. Like I'll do whatever it takes to, I want that wheel. I'm going to take that wheel. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Like, I definitely don't have that, especially as I get older. So that's probably has transitioned over to this. And that's probably why I didn't want to take the lead at mile 50, you know, like, yeah, it's probably similar. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. That's really yeah, interesting. I yeah. Can see I, Quinn's, wheel, Quinn's wheels yeah, are turning right now. <laughs> Yeah. yeah Cause even if I am like leading a race, you know, there's never a point where I'm like, oh yeah, I'm just absolutely destroying everyone else. It's more like, cool. Uh, how much further can I push this limit? Like, you know, it's more of like, I just happen to be at a better fitness, you know, it's like, okay, well, how much further can Quinn keep pushing Quinn? And I guess Quinn's pushing Quinn harder than whoever's pushing whoever else, you know, it's like, I mm -hmm. think it becomes a very, um, uh, self self involved competition of like mentally and physically and emotionally, I am trying to push myself, I guess, deeper than everyone else, but it, it's not, it might look as I, as, and that even taking me out of the picture, someone else like Keegan Swenson, right? Like one of the fastest he could not, he's kicking everyone's ass, but really Keegan might just be trying to kick Keegan's ass and he can just go deeper than, everyone else and he's not like yeah yeah sorry deep deep thoughts right there yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah i will say that that like now imagine so that stress that you have in that 90 minute xco whatever race like imagine that feeling of being on the front looking over your shoulder for 30 hours you know like that's people don't really factor in just that mental like stress of that like I think being on the front is probably harder. And you see people like Sofian and those guys that they're off the front from mile 10 of the tour divide and just, they probably are able to just shut it off. But yeah, that mental load can't be like underestimated of like how much stress that is to just always have that. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like uh, you're always consistently pushing harder than you want because you know, someone's behind you. And when you're behind someone, you're never pushing harder to catch them. You just know you're in second place and there's nothing you can do about it, but just to be at your own comfort. I, think balancing. I mean, it's a balancing act though. Yeah. Like, Cause you don't want to finish in second. So yeah, you're probably going to go a little harder than you want in second yeah. race. But I, th I think it's a risk. Yeah. I think it's emotionally easier to be in second unless you're worried about like, if you're feeling really low and thirds catching you, <laughs> but Ignoring then, third for a moment, I I would find it emotionally easier to to ride at my best 
if I was in second trying to catch first than I would be if I was in first trying to hold first. Like that's emotion emotionally, they're just totally different unless you can just get your mindset just right. And I feel like I more or less had that dialed in during this particular race. I wouldn't say I always have it dialed in, but I wasn't terribly stressed about it. Yeah. I don't know if that would happen again. Maybe I've, maybe I've unlocked the secret and I could do that again. I have no idea. I do think it would be interesting to see the data on ultra races where if people are in front for a really long period of time and suddenly get caught, like how many of them actually drop out? I think it's high because things happen and then they're like emotionally shattered after losing that and things like unravel and the small things become huge things yeah. and then they can quit for any number of reasons. I, I've seen it a bunch of times, you know, yeah. maybe it doesn't have to be first, but you know, somewhere in there when you're sort of, you have a expectation to sort of try and hold and then it's not met and then, and then things unravel. Yeah. Yeah, you get in your own head, which is half of the battle on these. But I think, like, thinking back to, like, the Arkansas high country, Ted King and Andrew Onram of the year, they went opposite directions, and, like, they were kind of battling it out for five, 600 miles. And eventually once, I think it was Andrew, once he figured out, like, he was behind. And it was a conglomerate of things. But that that once you crack mentally, it's just like you're not, you can't force yourself to do something if you throw in the towel. Oh, Yeah. And you're, you're on such a high emotional hyperdrive if you're in first place, you know, it's like this, okay, we're, we're still here. I got to go into my stores quick. I got to do everything quick. I got to do my, tie my shoes quick. But it can just fall apart. And as soon as you get all caught. it takes is a puncture, whatever. Like, yeah. Yeah. A missed burrito. Yeah. Anything. Totally. Yeah. Jesse, did you have any mechanicals of any kind? No, I didn't touch air pressure once my Arrow bars slipped down a few times, but I tightened those at the first kind of resupply. Um, but yeah, they're not nothing, which was pretty amazing considering, like I said, the bike had five miles on it. So that's crazy. Torque wrench works, I guess. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I had one, you know, small, minor flat tire. It was really funny, actually. I was kind of a little bit tired. It was just after San Diego and I was riding along this dirt road and it was a little bit washboard, not that big of a deal, but like, you know, like the dust is popping up with the light, you know, from your, your headlight on your bike. And, and it was just like the sand was sort of like was popping up in a really weird way. <laughs> Probably like 30 seconds before I was like, that's not sand. That's my ceiling. <laughs> oh. And, uh, and it was like literally just right on the center line. I have no idea what I ran over. It must've run. I must've run over something. Um, but yeah, I immediately plugged it and then I didn't even put air in it. Cause I felt it. And I was like, oh, it feels fine. <laughs> and, and I never had any issues with it. And then, with three and a half miles to go, my access derailleur just suddenly stopped working. Uh, I found out today it was warranted. Uh, so I have, a, I have a brand new access uh, derailleur and brand new access seat post. So my what? dropper also stopped working when I got home. I didn't wow. know it stopped working during the race, but both of them went completely brain dead uh, sometime at the end of the race. And you have to... In the derailleur's defense, it was fully submerged probably 50 times throughout the ride. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't tell, don't tell that. Yeah. yeah, it, yeah. So like with, I've never had any issues with it and yeah, with three and a half miles ago, it just, it like just stopped working and we were hiking in the snow at the time. It wasn't that big of a deal. Uh, but you know, I just assumed it was the battery and I swapped the battery and nothing worked and I tried waking it up and it was just totally toast. And Man. yeah, it turns out it was totally toast. So yeah. Better then than 
30 miles to go. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was kind of a bummer and it, you know, it wasn't the end of the world. It was like, my bike still worked. If that had happened mid race, I probably would have just like gone single speed. No big deal. I've got sliding dropouts. I, you know, I, I would have adapted, but with three and a half miles to go, I didn't give a shit. I would have just, just dragged <laughs> my bike to the finish. I didn't care. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, those two minor things, it, you know, it makes me pause about access, but it's like, I had so many thousands of miles of success with it with like no issues. I guess I got lucky here. So in my mind, it still wasn't that big of a deal, but I guess if it was like a thousand mile race and it happened at mile 500, I'd probably would feel differently. Oh yeah. God, yeah. that, that guy Shram really needs to get his shit together. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, in general, I'm super happy with it. I, I, I think it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't have any plans to switch at the moment. Okay. We, we were talking about that in my last podcast is, you know, I'm kind of old school with the cable and people who say they, they switched to the access is like, oh, I'll never go back to cable. And I just, you know, I don't have the funds or sponsors to. Yeah. So my first access, I got like dirt cheap from somebody like used. Um, I have since bought uh, for a different bike. I actually, because I got hooked on it, I have paid for it. Uh, I don't think I would pay for it again. Um, like on my gravel bike, I don't have access. I'm not going to put it on there. It's just too expensive. But at this point, I also don't want to pay to put non-access on it. It's like, that's what's on there. And I'm just going to keep, you know, Frankensteining things to make it work. But I, I don't yeah. have any plans to like buy a new group set. <laughs> I don't access or otherwise. I have what I have and I'm going to stick with it until, you know, I'll just replace parts. Totally. It's a slippery slope. So I went, I guess two years ago was the first electronic shifting that I threw on a road bike, Ultegra DI2. And like, since then I have what, six bikes and all of them are electronic shifting. So like, it's a, <laughs> yeah. there's no going back once you get it. Cause it's, especially for ultras, that's the thing people don't think about a lot is just like the dexterity, like your hands get shot, your wrist, your grip strength, everything. And like, so the DI2 or axis, like it's, it's easier on the hands for sure. Like measurably, measurably easier over that, that time scale. Yeah, for sure. I totally would agree with that. Cause even at a hundred miles, you know, the stagecoach, I mean, 100, man, just the downshift, like, like, ah, like cramping up forearm shot, you know, numb hands and my neck hurt. So mm -hmm. I couldn't imagine 300 miles into a race and having to downshift. Everything hurts. Yeah. <laughs> Jesse, Jesse, did you have any neck or shoulder issues? No, not at all. I, I often on the washboard, but other than that, like surprisingly, so I did run a redshift stem, one of the shock stems which is a first and that's worth it for this kind of stuff for sure. Like if you don't have suspension up front, like that stem helped a ton, but yeah, no. Yeah. I, I typically by the end of a race like that would like have a, I wouldn't say I had like have anything near Shermer's neck or anything like that, but I've often had like shoulder or neck discomfort or just like holding onto the bars and being in that position so long, but actually I felt really good. And I, I I'm attributing it to like more, core and like weight training that I've been doing this year. Um, and for me, I think a lot of it, we were off the bike a lot too, like more than any other race that I've done like this. So like, you're just, me. Like just <laughs> walking. I feel like just pushing your bike is like a break from your neck hunched over, you know, or that's true. I felt like I rode more than I normally would like during like AZT oh. 300 or Colorado trail, you walk okay. a whole lot more. <laughs> so I felt like I rode all the time. But you're right. Yeah, you are opportunity to be off the bike. But during the after the Colorado Trail, like, oh my God, my body's destroyed. Yeah, a lot of walking. Yeah. Well, 
guys, you, that was awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Quinn. Yeah. Thanks yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, um, Jesse, I want to, yeah, we'll have to get you on just one mano y mano. Um, cause I, I definitely want to hear your backstory on everything and kind of your journey that brought you to the bike and where, you know, where you've kind of gone, you know, with the whole two wheels it's working, it's working. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we'll definitely stay in touch. And if, if you're ever in Arizona, you know, let Dana be. know. I'll be there next year. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a- I'm trying to talk. Yeah. yeah, I'm trying to talk Jesse into getting out here for a few different things. I think Jesse would love the Verde Valley Randonnée. I mean, with his bike setup he had and his skill set, I think he would just crush that. Yeah, well, that's Dana. One thing I was going to say is um, that's on my radar for the fall to try to get the FKT on that. All right, and then I'll try. I'll try and get it back again from you. Yeah. <laughs> <Let's> see. <laughs> Yeah, what I really want to do is ride it in the reverse direction, uh, just to yeah. do something different. But yeah, that, it's yeah, such it's a beautiful cool. course, and you know, oh yeah, at faster, slower, whatever. It's gorgeous. So anybody who's listening, Google Verde Valley Randonnée and check it out. It's a open invitation event. Do it whenever the hell you want, um, and it's 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 fantastic. Two hundred fifty miles of, of gravel and pavement in northern Arizona, and it, I think it would be a sweet race if it's not already uh, yeah i mean it's i mean it, people can treat it as a competition if they want i mean that the few people who have done it have tried to go as fast as they can but like i think it would be great to just go you know either hotel it and and take your time or bike pack it or whatever um i've got patches anybody who completes the route gets one of these guys i'll mail it to what? you so um so yeah, it's a, it's a cool thing. Do it however you want to do it. My, you know, the, really the rules are just, you know, follow the route and uh, do it self-supported. But if you do it with a group, you're welcome to uh, share resources and draft. So you don't even have to do it solo. Just follow the route for any direction you want, start where, wherever you want and just go enjoy it at whatever pace you want. I mean, it's such a, I, I think it's a beautiful, beautiful course and it's just really nice. Cool. I'm excited. Except I, I'm going to be facing some demons, so. Yeah. <laughs> you got any goals? You can do it in 20? Yeah, the, the goal would be sub-20. It's under 24, right, is the... FKT. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it, I mean, I, I'm confident I could do it in under 20 in, like, better weather conditions. Yeah, that was cold, yeah. right? I remember hearing yeah. you say... And Quinn, Quinn's a whole lot faster than me, so he could he could definitely do that. So, yeah. But, again, I want to... I mean, we're talking about doing it fast, but anybody who's listening wants to go do it. Do it at whatever yeah. speed you want. It's beautiful. But I hope Queen. Yes. On I a separate Queen. note, do it. Do it for fun. That's what it's about. We ride yeah. bikes for fun. But if but you I'm gonna go real fast, yeah. <laughs> I want to just go really fast. Yes. Uh, but anyway, guys, I think we'll end it on that note. Um, we'll get some dinner and ha- get you guys back to your families. And um, but yeah, we'll we'll throw your um your Instagram and anything else at the um at the bottom in the show notes. So if you guys are interested in uh seeing what these two are about and uh do you guys have do you know where anyone can find like the story on stagecoach 400 dana's been real good about sharing it on his instagram he's done some little videos and stagecoach 400 meg i guess his handle on their facebook has been pretty good about kind of resharing everyone's stuff 
Okay. Yes. Cool. Yeah. There's a stagecoach 400 Instagram handle. In fact, I think it's stagecoach 400. Exactly that. There's a Facebook group. Also, there's a webpage that has information on it. Uh, there's not a ton on there, but, um, yeah. So if you check the socials, there's a bunch of stuff on there. Um, yeah, I've written up a sort of a recap, which I could, I could have you share in the show notes. Um, and a bunch of other people have as well. Um, that 13 year old Eden has a short um, video clip. That's pretty fun to watch. Okay. Yeah, so there's, there's stuff out there if people want to devour more. Um, yeah, go check it out. Go check it out. <laughs>